And as a way of introduction to them, I thought of uh, saying just a few things about uh, passion. Came up this morning in the question session, and um, and in my mind, at least, I connect uh, seven factors of awakening with the passion. That as the factors of awakening get strong in a practitioner, they have the feeling or the quality of almost being passionate, uh, of being very powerful currents of energy, currents of motivation, currents of, of interactivity that um, seems sometimes impersonal and flows through us and kind of informs who we are, informs our relationship to practice and the world around us. Um, and I think of uh, practice, mindfulness practice, Buddhist practice, as something which I've been engaged in uh, at times with great passion. Uh, I think some of, some of the greatest passion I've had in my life maybe the greatest passions I've had in my life, have been in relationship to doing practice, to doing... Um, there were times when um, it was the only thing that seemed uh, relevant and important for me in my life. And, and it was the only thing that I was going to do, and you better get out of my way, because I was set. And, um, and I went, the uh, second time I went to Asia, um, uh, I was really, the passion to go there and clarify for myself um, the root of my sense of self, to clarify uh, the roots of my suffering, uh, to clarify um, or, or to discover what it was like to really do the practice thoroughly, to really do it uh, as fully as I could as a human being. I had a passion for that, a desire for that, that uh, was um, um, unquestioned. It, was, it wasn't something I had a choice to question or a choice about whether I was going to follow through on it or not. Um, I had no choice but to throw myself into uh, the realms of practice and, uh, in, a, in a sense, uh, drop everything else. When I went to Asia the second time, I told myself that, uh, or the felt sense that I had, was I was, going, I was going for the duration. I didn't know what that expression meant. <laughs> But, uh, you know, it just, it was open-ended. I was, I was one-way ticket to, and I was going to just, you know, do what it took, do what it took to just follow through on that passion. When I came to, um, uh, to Thailand and I had to wait for a visa to go to Burma, it took me a long time. It took about nine months. I first applied in the United States and went to Thailand. It took me about nine months to uh, wait for the visa to go to Burma to practice there. It's the only country in the world that has a category called meditation visa. <laughs> so I was waiting for the meditation visa. And, uh, and finally, after nine months of waiting, I, my passport was stamped with this big stamp, you know, meditation visa. And, uh, and I, I left the Burmese embassy in Bangkok, and I started skipping and dancing down the street, uh, singing to myself, and I won't sing for you, but I'll say... <laughs> But I, the, the song that goes something like, um, uh, you can get it if you really want, you can get it if you really try, but you got to try, try and try, something like that. I was, <laughs> what? You want to sing for me? <laughs> you can get it if you really want. <laughs> 
try and try, try and try, and you'll succeed at last. <laughs> yeah, that's it. There you are. <laughs> so. My, my passion didn't have the same musical ability. <laughs> so I spared you. But um, uh, I look back at that drive, that passion for practice, and I, I'm, I myself can't see any place where that was in the service of greed or hate in the way that Anna talked about. Um, it just felt a kind of a biological imperative, biological urge. It just what had to happen, and um, and it, it happened. It was it was with a kind of great love for for practice, for life, for possibility of awakening, for clarification of the mind, of the heart, that I did that. Um, and so I know that it's possible to have a great zeal, great enthusiasm, for throwing oneself into practice. And I think that it's uh, very help- helpful to have that. Um, if a person's kind of uh, has some kind of simple idea or superficial idea <laughs> that um, mindfulness practice is about, oh, let's just accept everything as it is and just kind of sit here and pick, pick our noses and let things happen as they wish, um, uh, it, can, it can be kind of disservice to ourselves because sometimes it can actually be obscure uh, real powerful forces within us and in our heart to really want to clarify, really want to come to the heart of what this uh, it is to be a human being or the heart of what practice is about, to really uh, uh, come to a, discover what a compassionate place is, compassionate heart. Um, much of my fuel for wanting to practice was, um, and to do all the clarification that practice does, was um, I saw and felt a tremendous amount of suffering in the world. And I was motivated to somehow respond to that in my own little way, whatever way I could. <coughs> and and my, my effort to try to respond to the suffering I saw around me and in me uh, was through Buddhist practice. That was my vehicle. There's other vehicles. And, and that provided tremendous fuel, again, to, to, for the passion, for the enthusiasm. Um, and um, so again, you know, there can sometimes can be a complacency setting in uh, with the mindfulness practice. And maybe the way we teach it lends to that, because we say often enough, um, you know, that practice is about accepting things as they are, not trying to change things, not trying to get anything. Uh, right here, right now is where it's at anyway. So, you know, you know any kind of drive maybe is kind of besides the point. But I, I think that the, 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 the passion can be the passion to do just that, the passion to really arrive here, the passion really to, um, uh, to let go of all the obscurations, all the, let go of all the movements of greed and hate, the passion to really discover what it's like to be here and not try to be anywhere else. So maybe you call that a paradox, but uh, I think you can, you know, so, so that the movement of practice with great enthusiasm, is to get nowhere, but to really be here as fully and completely as you can. Uh, and not to do it in a kind of complacent way, you know. I'll get here, you know, someday if I just 
sit here long enough. Um, so to have passion in practice, I think it's a beautiful thing. Maybe for you it's a different word, enthusiasm or inspiration. So the seven factors of awakening um, belong in my mind to kind of the more passionate realms of practice. Um, they are states of mind which it's taught that it's useful for practitioners to become familiar with. Either, either directly because they can experience them for themselves or, or indirectly in the sense just learning about them so it's stored away back up there in your memory so that you can recognize it when it does arise. Um, the, it seems that the way the mind works or the way, certainly the way Buddhism teaches the mind works, it's been my experience, is that the obscurations, the hindrances, and the forces of greed, hate, and delusion exist in, to some degree because of ignorance, to some degree because we're blind to something. So there's some kind of obscuration of awareness. Awareness doesn't see something. Um, and it's said that the hindrances and forces of greed and hate, the torments of the mind, uh, are fed by ignorance, are fed by unawareness, lack of awareness. The less aware you are, the more likely we are to act out impulsively out of these forces. Conversely, it said that the wholesome uh, forces in the mind, uh, for example, the seven factors of awakening, they are fed by awareness. The unwholesome tendencies, they're starved by awareness. The more aware you become, the, the less and less you'll find yourself acting and responding from, from the forces of greed, hate, and delusion. The more aware you become, the more that awareness feeds the forces of generosity, of love, of compassion. And you'll find those states becoming stronger, um, you know, with time. So to learn to recognize the seven factors of awakening when they arise is important because uh, it allows them to, um, it kind of, it feeds them, it fuels them, it allows them to become stronger. And the strengthening of the seven factors of awakening is one of the things that begins to happen to people as the practice become, begins to mature, as mindfulness matures in their life. Um, now, the seven factors of awakening are both a description of the maturing factors that go on as a person practices, and it's a description of, somewhat of a description of what an awakened state is like, a liberated state is like, that these things are really strong and really present for a person. Now, these seven factors of awakening are, the first one is mindfulness, the second is investigation, the third is energy or engagement, the fourth is joy, and the fifth is calmness, tranquility, and the sixth is concentration, samadhi, and the seventh is equanimity. So these seven things become more, become, it's kind of like our inner treasure that get, gets stronger and stronger with the, de- with the development of uh, mature mindfulness practice. Um, mindfulness is first in the list, partly because it's the guiding factor for the other six, 
and partly because uh, you can never have too much mindfulness. The other factors need to be balanced with each other. And so you can't have too much, you, could, you can, in theory, have too much joy. You can have too much concentration. You can have too much calmness. But you need to bring the other factors to, in, into place to balance them. If you have a lot of concentration, there has to be a, a balancing factor of, of energy or engagement. If there's a lot of tranquility, there has to be energy or perhaps investigation. Three of the factors are energizing and three of the factors are more tranquilizing. Investigation, joy, and effort bring effort, raise the effort. Tranquility, concentration, and equanimity are calming, more settling. And, it isn't, and we want to have a balance of them. It's possible to be too calm. If you're, if you're attached to calm, and kind of chasing calm and trying to be soothed by calm in practice, you can end up actually falling asleep rather than uh, waking up. And if you have too much energy, not enough calm, not enough subtleness, then you can be really agitated. So to balance these things. Um, so mindfulness is the first one. And mindfulness is the primary thing we're doing here on this retreat, practicing mindfulness. And uh, I have kind of a, of a love relationship with mindfulness, uh, with awareness. I think it's one of the great things that I just love and delight with. And perhaps, as with any, any uh, relationship, uh, it isn't always easy relationship that I have with mindfulness. Um, sometimes uh, I don't get along with it very well. Sometimes it doesn't seem to get along with me and stays away. Um, and I beg it to come back and it doesn't want to. And <laughs> you know, so it's not, a, it's not exactly you know, a straightforward relationship, but it's still something I love very much. And why is it that I love mindfulness so much? Why is it so, so important? Some of it is because um, that in its essence, what mindfulness is in and of itself, there's a purity to it. A purity in that it is non-judgmental, it's non-critical. And because of that, I, I, I call it infinitely forgiving, infinitely compassionate. It just simply sees, very matter-of-factly, sees things as they are. Sometimes the analogy of a mirror is used for mindfulness. A mirror doesn't comment about what appears in front of the mirror. It just reflects honestly what comes to the mirror. So mindfulness has its qualities like a mirror that doesn't, doesn't comment, doesn't criticize, doesn't condemn, doesn't, just allows whatever's there to be there in and of itself. And this is a quality which uh, is, for many of us, is actually quite difficult to rest in or to make a, a kind of prominent part of our life. Because many of us, the, the uh, concerns of judgment, of evaluation, of measuring how we're doing against other people, comparative thinking, um, self-criticism and guilt, feeling that we're unworthy or we're bad in some ways, are rampant in our society. And because of that, oftentimes, the very effort to be mindful gets entangled with these forces of self-criticism or criticism, judgment. So much so that some people don't actually see very clearly the difference between the two. Um, it's almost as if mindfulness then becomes a form of self-consciousness. And self-consciousness is not mindfulness because there's a sense of self that's, you know, coloring the mirror. Um, 
but we, every single one of us has this capacity of awareness within us. It's happening whether you know it or not. Um, though there might be kind of veils over it at times. But all of us have within us this capacity to simply see things purely as they are. To see, kind of, to see, to hear the sound of the bell. And it's just a sound of the bell. There's a, there's a knowing, there's a bell, there's a sound of the bell. None of you, hopefully, were thinking, that was a terrible way Gil hit the bell. <laughs> I could have done a better job. <laughs> you know, it was just the sound of the bell for that moment. Um, there's a, a, a famous Japanese Zen master named Banke, who, um, in the middle of his Dharma talks, if a, if a the village dog barked outside the temple, uh, in the middle of his great impassioned Dharma talk, he would suddenly stop and say, um, did you monks hear the dog bark? And, and they said, well, yes. But, you know, they were, they were so intent on, on, the, on the talk that the sound of the dog barking kind of came into their awareness, but there was no judgment or evaluation or doing anything with that sound of the dog barking. And he'd say, that's it. That barking, that, that, the, the one who heard that dog, that's the one that's free. That's the awareness which can just allow things to be as they are and, and not do anything extra with them. Kind of pointing to that, that ability we all have. And for many of us, uh, and for a long part of our mindfulness practice, it's slow, it's, uh, the, the, a lot of the task we do is to begin finding that ability, slowly, slowly, finding that ability to begin teasing apart our judgments and our evaluations about what's happening in the present moment. To tease apart the judgment and evaluation from the possibility of mirror-like awareness, just seeing things as they are. To see our anger arise, and not to add irritation or impatience or shame on top of the anger, or judgment or evaluation. Just let anger be anger there. Or let joy arise, and not to do anything special with the joy, not to feel proud, not to feel shameful for the joy. There are people, especially Catholic background, who will feel shame when joy arises in meditation. But not to do anything with it, just to let it arise and let it kind of move across the mirror of awareness and let it be as it is. And for many people, um, it's a tremendously healing and an essentially important part of this practice. Is perhaps months and years of giving themselves in small increments the best they can, this ability to be present for themselves in this, without judgment, without evaluation, just taking yourself as you are with all your warts and freckles and your, your farting and your... You know, whatever, you know, weird tendencies of your mind you have. And just simply allowing it to be there and be willing to just see yourself and not do anything more or less about it, just to let it be there in the mirror of awareness. And leave yourself alone, to leave ourselves alone. And it's, it becomes like a bomb, this wonderful, soothing lubricant that moves through our whole body when we kind of finally leave ourselves alone. The great gift of letting ourselves, warts and all, imperfections and all, just be as we are. Uh, and it's not an easy thing to do. And it, uh, I struggled and struggled in practice. Um, I had tremendous amount of guilt. Everywhere I turned, I felt guilty. I would feel guilty the way I walked across the, the way I walked across the zendo floor. I felt guilty I was doing it wrong. I was felt guilty about the way I opened a door. I felt guilty by the way I ate. And you named it. I thought, you know, Gil was short for guilt. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
<clears throat> but to have a real interest in discovering that capacity of having that mirror-like awareness, to simply be present for things as they are, to have an interest in that. And that interest, I mean, let, let alone doing it, but to have an interest in doing that is a huge thing. Because many of us, if we're really honest about what goes on in our minds, are actually much more interested in our neurosis. We're much more interested in our sense of self. I think a great majority of the kind of incessant thoughts that we have in meditation are self-referential, in thoughts in life, are self-referential. They have to do about me, how I am, what I'm going to do tomorrow, what I'm going to say in that conversation, what I didn't say in the last conversation, what I'm going to say in my interview, what didn't, you know, and how I, you know, you know, it goes on and on, right? Me, you know, I'm not doing it right, I'm doing it great right now, this is wonderful. Me, I, you know. The great ism, I-ism, that we all have. But to be interested in the possibility of waking up into that mirror-like awareness, just being present and seeing things in a very kind of straight, easy way. This is really, I think, the heart of Buddhist practice. And I like to think of Buddhism not as an ism at all. Uh, It's not a set of teachings about truth that tell you what the truth is. It's a teaching about a practice that can help you uh, become freer and more compassionate and more loving in, in your life. And it's all too easy to, to get lost behind an ism, to get lost in, in a religion and not really wake up and see reality directly for ourselves, but to see it through the filter of, of whatever teachings a particular religion is teaching. But the great religion that most of us have long since become uh, fanatical, fundamentalist ad- adherence to is the great religions of Iism, Meism, and Minism. And you can pay attention to your thoughts, and many of you find many of them are self-referential. We have pre- uh, we have, we're preoccupied often with the world of our thoughts. Many of us live, we reside, our life energy, life vitality often lives in the stories we tell ourselves, the ideas, the thoughts, whatever. It's a wonderful Zen story about uh, the man, artist, who um, was always painting dragons. And he painted them more and more realistically. And then finally he painted this really realistic dragon. And he stepped back to look at his work, and he got frightened and ran away. Many of us paint in our minds all these stories. And then we relate to the stories rather than relating to what is happening right now, relating to the abstractions. Many of you know the famous uh, idea of Vipassana romances and Vipassana vendettas. I call them nowadays uh, virtual romances and virtual vendettas <laughs> because often they have nothing to do with what's going on. You know, I, you know, I had my Vipassana romance in, at Barry for three months. Three months is a long time to have one. <laughs> And the, and the relationship can develop <laughs> quite extensively during that time. So, you know, it was quite a developed relationship. You know, someone I never talked to and never, you know. And then, uh, and then at the end of the retreat, there was beginning to be some talking, and I think she asked a question in the hall, and she had a, a very thick foreign accent. And 
and suddenly my bubble popped and I realized that the virtual world I lived in, I'd assumed she was an American. And when I heard the accent, I realized I didn't have a clue who she was. It had all been virtual. You know, it had all been in the world of imagination. You know, it's kind of... Um, and many of us live much of our time in our imagination. We give priority to it. We think that's what's most important. Um, I mean, we don't, if you don't, you, won't, you won't say that if someone asks you, but the way we act, what we believe and what we do is often different, right? So what we actually do is we often kind of somewhat unconsciously give tremendous priority to our stories and our ideas. Um, and it's kind of like um, someone who was, is addicted to television. And they're always watching television. And there's all this, you know, stuff on television. It's, it's pretty varied at times, right? Uh, and you can watch, you know, all these drama and soap operas and the Nature Channel and the news and, you know, it goes on and on and on. And a person can be kind of pulled into this whole world of different themes and stories and ideas on television. And can, it doesn't want to be pulled away because it's so interesting. And then finally they're pulled away and they go out into the beautiful setting here and they feel the warmth against their cheek and the wind blowing through the hair and, and they, they kind of they smell the, the fragrance of the fog or the fragrance of the, of the grass or whatever and, and um, see the heron maybe flying by and, and suddenly the world has become three-dimensional. Because the, the uh, television is two-dimensional world. There's not a lot of... The fullness of our being is not really engaged in the two-dimensional world of television. And so you leave and we realize, that, wow, there's a huge world out here of, that can be experienced in three-dimensional ways in all my senses and all my... Uh, my whole body, my whole being. This is much richer in, than, than the world of television I've been living in so long. I don't watch television, so maybe this analogy doesn't, is not very good for some of you. But this is my, my uninformed idea of how it might be. Um, well, the same thing is true with our mind. To the degree which we live, we reside, we put a permanent residence in the world of our thinking and our thoughts. We're living in a, in a two-dimensional or one-dimensional world. And it can be fascinating. It's full of drama and soap operas and the news and commentary and Nature, nature Channel and all those things are there also. <laughs> but there's a kind of, you know, it's a virtual world. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of two-dimensional, one-dimensional. When a person begins to wake up to the world that's wider than our thoughts, to the world of the senses, the world of the body, being in the body, um, and beginning to rest and reside more in the present moment, to be awake in the present moment more. The present moment is not boring. The present moment is not this kind of like, some people are worried, well, if I really wake up and in the present moment all the time, I'll be dull. You know, finally I get this neutral point, you know, and the neutrality is boring and I'll have this dull life as soon as I become enlightened. It's the opposite, that as we become more and more awake and present, there's a much, larger range of human experience available to us than is available to us if we're residing in the world of thoughts. Huge. The, ra- the, ra- no, the range of varied states of consciousness, states of being, and states of experiences that's possible when 
you start kind of being more interested in being more present in the present moment. It just it far exceeds what's available to us uh, in all the soap operas of the mind. So to begin so slowly to come out of that drama to be more in, and become more interested in something else. And it can be as simple as being more interested in the breath or more interested in the body. The, our mindfulness of the body, classically, is the vehicle, the channel, for coming out of the story and coming into a wider sense of being. To drop down, be connected to our physical experience, to yield and surrender to what's happening in the body and how the body registers and experiences life. And one important key area of the body for many people, not everyone, is the experience of breathing. The, the felt sense, not the image of, of what the breath is, not you know, following it at, you know, at a distance dutifully, but entering the breath in the breath to really kind of let the awareness reside in the breathing and, and let the physical experience of breath begin to take a priority in our experience over uh, our commentary, our ideas, our judgments, our evaluations, all the world of thoughts that we have. So the first of the factors of awakening is mindfulness, the great mere awareness. It just allows things to be as they are. And as I said earlier, for many people, it just, it's beginning to find this ability to leave ourselves alone, to have this kindness and compassion to ourselves, to not need to change ourselves, not need to fix ourselves, not need to criticize and condemn ourselves, but to start where we're at and really, maybe passionately, allow ourselves to be who we are with all our imperfections and limitations and all our suffering and all the ways in which we've done it wrong or doing it wrong, just to hold it. And it, could, it can be such a phenomenal relief to begin just bringing mindfulness, steady mindfulness to this very moment. So the second factor of awakening is investigation. To investigate, to be interested, to be curious, to inquire into what this experience is. To get to know it better. Um, sometimes in, in these circles we differentiate between being, doing, and being. And doing is a place we tend to suffer a lot. Not that doing is inherently bad, but we sometimes end up doing too much. And we're overactive and over busy and, and uh, we get stressed out. And the state of being, as opposed to doing, is, is a state where we're not trying to become anything, but just allowing ourselves to be as we are. A little bit of a variation on this is to distinguish between being and knowing. And mindfulness is the knowingness of the mind, not just, not just simply learning to be, to, to be and leave ourselves alone, not try to become anything different, but passionately just allow ourselves to be as we, who we are at this moment. But there's also the knowing of what that is, to knowing what, what we're leaving alone, to knowing what's actually here right now. And to be interested, what is this? Be curious, to kind of, kind of begin looking a little bit closer. Not to think your way, analyze what this is, but when the mirror awareness is there, and just allowing things to be as they are, can you bring the mirror a little bit closer so you can see more closely what it actually is? Get to know it better, be more intimate. Investigation has a lot to do with intimacy. Um, Instead of thinking about it, instead of analyzing it, 
can you enter that world and get to know it better? Can you feel the tightness of anger? Can you feel the, the weight, heavy weightedness, perhaps, of depression? Can you feel the tingling of joy? Can you feel the really, really carefully and minutely um, the ache of the knee or the ache of the back? Um, to not just simply allow it to be there as it is, but to actually go into it and get to know it better, as if you've never, never, you've never known a knee pain before, or you've never known inhalation before. Every breath is like a snowflake. Each breath is different from another. Can you really kind of go in there and kind of rest in it, get to know it, and be intimate to it? Being careful not to get agitated in the mind, but just simply to kind of, what's happening now, to investigate. When, you know, if someone comes in through the door and bangs the door and you, and you get annoyed because, you know, how could they bang the door in the middle of our sitting? You can just stay, stay there and stay with annoy, annoyance and maybe self-righteousness. You know, I would never have banged the door. And after all, this is a mindfulness retreat and they should be mindful. And, and, um, and that's kind of staying again in that world of the story, of the thoughts. To investigate is to be interested. What's actually going on inside of me here? What's happening with me? What is the aversion? What's the judgment? What's the impatience? What's that like inside of me? To use investigation to find out what's going on. Investigation, I think, is one of the beautiful qualities of a spiritual life because a spiritual life is never over, or human life is never over, because there's always something more to understand. As soon as you understand something about life, there's always that which is outside and beyond what you've understood so far. So there's never any end to investigation. And it's one of the great delights, I think, to, to uh, discover, to go beyond our limited understandings, to go, beyond into the, to go into the unknown beyond what we understand right now. I think it's a great delight, a great joy. So the third factor of awakening is energy or effort or engagement, to bring effort and engagement. We, there has to be engagement in the practice, otherwise there's no practice. But what is the nature, what's the quality of that engagement you bring? There can be too little engagement, too little effort, and there can be too much effort. Too little effort, and we become dull, hazy, complacent, we sleep, we kind of just coast along, too much effort, and we become agitated, tight, constricted, um, um, restless even. Part of the, the, the art of making effort in practice is to pay attention to the quality of the effort we make, the quality of the practice itself, to see what we're investing the effort with. Is the effort we're making invested with demand, or with expectation, or with fear, or wanting to get away from something? Or is it invested with, um, with ambition? Or is it invested with a samurai spirit? Or is it invested with hesitation, and shyness, and resistance? Do we, what, what's coming along with our effort to get to know it? And to feel the quality of the effort, is the effort too forceful? Or is the effort too laid back? The, 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 um, 
the word I like for the proper effort is the effort which has, is taut. It's not tight, not loose, but it's taut in the same way that a, a guitar, guitar string is taut, taut enough to make beautiful music. If it's too tight or too loose, you don't have music. <laughs> the effort that we bring to practice varies from hour to hour and from, uh, from uh, you know, day to day. It depends what's happened, what's happening with you. If there are tremendous forces of distraction and you're always kind of wandering off, maybe you need to have more effort to stay present and kind of really kind of bring more strong effort, perhaps. Um, or perhaps uh, there's a lot of calmness and subtleness and the, and the effort itself needs to be match the calmness with a kind of calm, subtle feeling in and of itself. You don't want to use a, a too strong effort if you're pretty settled, but you don't want to use too little either. It's possible to gauge one's effort and to try to find, you know, what is there just the right effort here that helps me to wake up and be present, to be engaged. Another aspect of engagement, which is very important on retreat, is one of the ways in which practice develops is not so much from our doing something specifically, I mean, in terms of, you know, our kind of negotiating, making something happen directly, but the continuity of our effort, the continuity of our engagement with mindfulness of being present brings fruit over time. So the more continuous you are with your engagement, with trying to be present, trying to be mindful, that continuity kind of uh, be, um, waters and feeds and nourishes our ability to be concentrated, our ability to be mindful, our ability to recognize, our ability to be present. Um, so continuity of practice means also paying attention to what's happening in between the times you're sitting and walking, during the meal, or as you're walking to the bathroom, as you're walking down to lunch, or you're walking to your dorm room, or to actually cultivate some semblance of mindfulness of presence in all the things you do. Because I see a lot of you um, will get up from here at the end of a sitting, and as far as I can tell, you guys are sit- you, could, you might be sitting quite intently and really engaged, involved in your practice, of, you know, while you're sitting. And then the bell rings, and some people get up really fast and just dash out the door and walk, you know, you know, as, I don't see any mindfulness anymore as they walk out the hall and walk out the door, and it seems like they're already in their, in the, you know, in their mind thinking about something, and, and they will go by the, the bulletin board out there, and they're putting on their coat and reading the board at the same time, and, and it isn't that that's bad. I don't have any, you know, I'm not critis, critis, critical of people who do that at all. But um, it's, a, um, it's a lost opportunity for continuity of practice. And if you are really, if you pay attention carefully to what happens as you get up from a sitting or as you leave a walking period, to notice when is it you actually leave your mindfulness? When does it actually leave your, leave your embodied sense of being present right here and right now? And leave and take up residence again in your thoughts and your stories and your ideas. It's possible to get up from a sitting here and spend the you know, to go to lunch and get up, walk down the hill, serve yourself, eat, and not have a mindful moment until you finish eating and you're, you're kind of overly full and you say, oh, I should have paid more attention. 
It's possible to do. I've done that. So that's why I know it's possible. <laughs> um, and it's also possible to pay attention. Notice that tendency to get lost in our thoughts, get involved and take up residence there again, and say, wait a minute, maybe there's another way of doing it. Maybe there's a more interesting thing to do. Maybe there's a, more, a wider world to discover. Let me see if I can stay present, noticing and noting and being aware of what's happening as I do it, to keep the mirror the curtain of the mirror pulled open so you can actually be present for your body, your bodily experience of walking down the hill or going to the bathroom or taking a shower or whatever you do. And that do, uh, doing that throughout the day, developing continuity of mindfulness in a careful but gentle and forgiving and kind way, um, greatly, greatly reinforces our ability then to wake up and be present and concentrate when we do go and sit, when we do do walking meditation. And then in the service of that continuity, it can be very useful if you actually also slow down the, the speed in which you do things here on the retreat. Um, there's a, slowness by itself is not, you know, some, you know, you know it's not that like this great religious activity, but, um, you know, it's, uh, but slowness itself is very helpful for keeping us connected to ourselves, to keeping us, helping us, reminding ourselves to stay in the present moment. There's a tendency is when we get get back to a normal pace of doing things, it's very easy to get kind of lost in those thoughts again. But to slow down, to spend maybe, you know, maybe walk half as fast as you normally do to go down to the meal, and doing that in the service of trying to stay connected in your body, being present for what's going on in the moment to keep up the noting, the awareness, to be engaged, um, and to be careful with the engagement, to be careful with the energy, to notice the quality of it, to notice when it's tight, to notice when it's demanding, to notice when it's unforgiving, um, uh, to notice these things so that perhaps you can let go of that and find a more you know, forgiving, compassionate, but engaged involvement. Uh, while you're here. Um, so the fourth factor of awakening is joy. And it's sometimes said that, uh, that joy arises out of engagement, out of the effort. When we're really fully engaged in something, really all our kind of, kind of our, 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 our passion, our interest, our enthusiasm, our just really kind of presence is there for it, uh, joy arises. Um, and some people ha- know that from the daily life, that doing certain activities, really kind of being there fully for it, uh, there can be a lot of joy. When I was working in a, when I was a, when I was a cook, working in the kitchen, I had lots of joy, um, because just, just really being there with that carrot and chopping it, and, you know, I loved, I loved it when we had five gallons of onions to chop. That was just great, because, you know, at home, you just, you know, you chop one onion, it's over, you know. So much for the concentration. But, but in the kitchen, you know, you can really kind of, you know, five gallons of onions is a lot of onions. And just to be there, and chopping away, and just really being present and mindful. I loved it, you know, I'd feel so much joy. Um, so some people know, you know, have activities in daily life that they really enjoy doing, when they really get absorbed in doing. When we really get, it's possible to get really absorbed and engaged in noticing and being present. What's happening now? What's happening now? What's happening now? Being here, being here. Letting the body, 
reveal itself to you, the embodied sense of being in a body. Over and over, moment after moment, what is the body speaking? What is the body expressing? What, is the body, what are the sensations that are coursing through the body? Um, to really allow the body to kind of the bodily sensations, the breath, to really be something you kind of get engaged in in a beautiful way can bring joy. Um, joy is a very important part of Buddhist practice. And I know from my own experience that um, it's, you know, it's, you know, it, it can be long periods of time when joy is not part of a person's life. There can be a lot of, uh, a lot of other feelings that are going on, a lot of other things that are being processed and dealt with. But awakening itself, awakening itself will not happen without passing through the doors of joy. There needs to be joy for there to be full liberation, or even partial liberation. Uh, as the factors of awakening develop, a joy becomes part of the practice. Um, but to start noticing a little bit, even, even in small ways, the joy that's here. Part of the, what, what happens to many of us, I believe, is that because we're so preoccupied with our stories, our sense of self, with I-ism, my-ism, mine-ism, the degree in which we're preoccupied by things, we often don't notice small moments of joy or calmness that might actually be here. To, because joy and joy is one of those wonderful factors that you don't really, we don't create. You can't make yourself feel joyful. But we allow for the possibility. It's one of the things that we allow, if we allow for the possibility, it's more likely to occur. If we're preoccupied in the machinations of the mind, there's not much allowance of it. So to walk out here on the courtyard out here and, and take a moment from preoccupation and allow for the possibility of looking at the, you know, at the blue sky or looking at down the valley. And maybe some of you will even just a small, small little hint of joy or delight or pleasure will arise just in that moment. But to begin recognizing that actually there's probably more joy as part of your life than maybe you realize. Joy. There's a beautiful, um, I like at least the poem by Blake that goes something like, He who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. The idea of kissing joy as it passes, not holding on to it, not grasping it or making mine, but when joy is there, to just kiss it, you know. I love it. I love that image. Just kind of. There's no appropriation with a kiss. Just peck it. Um, joy. I don't know if this is exactly a joy story, but um, <laughs> but it has to do with. Um, kind of with passion, I guess, and my passion for practice. And so I finally made it to Burma after that nine-month waiting and skipping through the streets of Bangkok. And after a while in Burma, I would start each sitting with another song. And maybe Howie again will... <laughs> 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 Since uh, 
I would lose my job as a Dharma teacher if I sang for you. <laughs> but I'll start each, sing, each sitting with, um, by, um, I go, uh got a whole lot of love. <laughs> I never told my teacher. He would ask, what happened at the beginning of your sitting? The breath rose. <laughs> Got a whole lot of love. So I would just, it was like my mantra, with like this thing I would do. And, and it, it was kind of my way of kind of arriving here, reminding myself that where I was going to be for the next 45 minutes, the next hour, was here on this cushion, in this place, this time, this corner of the universe of the world. I was going to be right here, and I would do this little thing, this ritual, the mantra. Got a whole lot of love. Mm. And then I'd be here. A little bit. A little bit more than I had been just before. And it was a wonderful way of starting. And it, it, it lent itself, I think, a little bit of, uh, allow a little bit more for the possibility for there to be some love or delight or joy in the practices I did it. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's a paradox in a sense, but the mindfulness practice, is very, it's very serious business. I think it's very serious. I've committed my life to it. Um, I wouldn't do that lightly. Um, and I think that the, the, the stuff that, that we are engaged with in bringing mindfulness to our life, the tremendous suffering that we have and the tremendous difficulties many of us have in our life, are, are no, nothing to be made light of. It's, it's not easy to be engaged in mindfulness practice, to be present and to wake up and to, and to be with ourselves as we are. But it's helpful to also, to, it's very serious business, and the paradox is also, it's not that serious, or there's kind of, you can be kind of light about it, or not take, don't take it too seriously, uh, if it's possible to do that, if it makes sense to do that. Um, to care and not to care is a famous line by T.S. Eliot. To be passionately caring, but not to take it too seriously, to be kind of light about it. To see if, to see if it's possible to relate to the practice and relate to yourself outside of preoccupation, outside of the story you tell yourself about yourself. Is that possible? To step outside of your story and see yourself from that point. If you see yourself from inside your story, it'll be kind of heavy, oftentimes. So joy, joy that comes from inspiration, to be inspired. I was often quite inspired um, um, (coughs) by seeing other people who were practicing. I, I feel joy coming and sitting here in the hall with you. Um, I have joy having interviews with you. Uh, I get inspired by it. I get inspired to, in myself to engage myself more fully in practice by seeing how you guys are engaged. I come in here and see you guys sitting, and I know it's not easy for many of you. And to see you sitting here and plugging away and trying your best, I find uh, inspiring and joy-producing for me. Um, so the joy of inspiration, uh, of know, maybe you know someone um, who uh, you know, has some <coughs> wonderful quality of ease, of freedom, of uh, compassion, wisdom, and to be inspired joyfully uh, by knowing their presence in the world, knowing their presence in your life perhaps. To be inspired by the example of the Buddha, the Buddha each of you. Uh, the joy of engagement, the joy of really kind of being really involved, really engaged. 
Um, and so, and then to appreciate the joy that's there. And joy does arise in practice. It's not to be kind of brushed off, or it's not to be treated lightly, or not to be kind of, um, you know, dismissed lightly. Joy is a great thing to arise in practice when it does arise. You don't want to hold on to it. You don't want to, you don't want to bind it to yourself and make it your own and cling to it and then plan the next sittings about how you can get it back. But when it's there, it's fine to experience it. It's fine to allow it to be there. Cultivate your mirror-like awareness with that and allow it to be there and get to know it better, investigate it. Get the sense, get to feel better. What does it feel in the body to have joy there? How is it... Where is there lightness? Where is there delight? Where is there tingling? What's going on when there's joy? What's happening? Get to know it better. It's a fine thing to do. Just as it's a fine thing to do to get to know the hindrances when they're present. Uh, We try to get to know better what's actually happening. So after joy, the fifth factor of awakening is calmness, tranquility. And in a sense, I kind of like the fact that they follow each other, because um, sometimes it's possible to get too identified with joy and fuel it into a kind of a giddiness or kind of hyper kind of state of joy. Or it can be joy can actually be also a little bit agitated at times if it's too strong, kind of agitated feeling. It's fine at first; you feel this tremendous joy, and it's really great. You finally, wow, I'm arrived. This is it. And and then and then after you know stays for a while, and after a while you realize, wait a minute, this is actually quite exhausting to always feel this intense joy. So calmness follows joy. To to appreciate also the possibility of tranquility or calmness. And I know that calmness doesn't come easy. Tranquility doesn't come easy. But when it's there, to recognize it or to allow for its possibility, or to um, get to know appreciate it in a smaller minute ways it sometimes appears, to appreciate its presence. There's actually much more calmness in the present, in yourself, than most of us realize. And we don't realize it because most of us, most of the time, are, are viewing life and ourselves through the filter of the stories we live in, the ideas, the judgments. And so that's kind of our narrow world, that we live in, and we don't see kind of beyond it. But we're much more than our thoughts, believe it or not. We are much more than our thoughts. And it's possible sometimes to kind of take a little broader vision. What else is going on here besides my thinking? What's, the, what's a greater sense of self, greater sense of presence, that's larger than these particular thoughts and concerns I have? that are going around and around and around all the time. Who are you in between your thoughts? Do do, do thoughts follow each other one after the other? They overlap each other so there's no space? Or is there occasionally a little gap between thoughts? And when there's there's even a teeny little gap between the thoughts, do you then not exist? Are you dead during that moment? You know, you're, you're chugging along just fine, thank you. Things are just wonderful in that gap, in that moment. And then next thoughts come, and then, then things are terrible again. <laughs> so there's, there's more. There, it's possible occasionally. It's not, I'm not saying it's easy to do this, but it's possible sometimes when you find yourself lost in thought, 
not to get rid of it or let go of it so much, but to kind of relax into some wider sense of presence. It might include the thinking, but some wider sense of presence, of beingness, that includes much more than thought, that includes the sense of being embodied or being in a body, the vibration, vibrating sense of vitality of life inside of ourselves, the sounds in the room around us, the stillness perhaps that sometimes exists here in this room. You can sense that if you relax and kind of open to a wider sense of presence. That wider sense of presence is a calmer presence than an agitated mind. And so the calmness is there sometimes, just around your agitation. Just sometimes, just outside of the borders of your agitation, there can be often a lot more peace than you realize. And not to let, not to be, deny the agitation or to judge it, but it's possible to kind of sometimes relax into some wider place. Calmness, tranquility. Again, the the issue of continuity of practice is very helpful for the cultivation of tranquility. It happens regularly on these kinds of retreats, especially here where it's so beautiful to go for a hike and the hill is so steep, that there are people that say, well, um, for whatever reasons, many reasons, many many very good reasons, say, well, I, I think what I really need to do is go for a hike. I wonder what's up on top of the ridge. Let's go. And they go to the ridge, and it's really steep, you know, going up there. And it takes a lot of huffing and puffing. And it, and it's a wonderful activity in itself, but it, it actually can agitate the mind. The mind can get more, more busy and speedier, and you come back, and it's very steep coming back the hill also, coming down again. And people come, come and report sometimes in an interview, that they had a great hike, it was very nice, but when they came back, they, were, they had gone back two days in the retreat, because a certain level of subtleness that had set in, they hardly even recognized, had been, had been kind of undone by all the kind of running up and running down the hill or whatever they did. So there's ways in which sometimes we take ourselves out of the retreat and it actually will sometimes interrupt the continuity of the settling that happens here, even if you don't even want it to happen. If you just simply follow the schedule and live very simply here, simply as you can, because we're not talking, there's often a settling that happens. And you'll find, all of you will find, that, that you'll be a lot calmer at the end of this retreat than you were when you came in. Much more settled. And we'll say at the end, we all, that all of you are much more settled and calm and open than you realize. And that's what we mean, then you realize. And you'll find out, you go out on Sir Francis Drake Road, or you go into Safeway, and you know, you realize, wow, I'm in an altered state, I'm really calm, or settled. So there is a calmness, a subtleness that happens here in the retreat. And what I ask you to do, even if you don't recognize it in yourself, I would recommend or suggest that you try to really honor and respect the momentum that's happened here and try to stay really simple, as simple as you can. Not talking, not doing too many kind of active, activated kinds of things. Calmness, tranquility. Then the uh, sixth factor of awakening is concentration, samadhi. In concentration, 
comes with engagement, to be engaged with what you're doing. It comes with being calm, being tranquil, being settled. It comes with being joyful, having joy in the practice. Concentration comes. I, I think that it's best not to try to make yourself concentrated. I think concentration, in my mind, is something we allow for the possibility for it to happen. But we allow it, there are conditions that we do to help it to happen. And one of the conditions is, is mindfulness, being mindful of the present moment, but then sustaining the mindfulness through time. Not just simply to kind of, some people have a checklist approach to mindfulness. There's an in-breath, check. There's an out-breath, check. There's a sound, check. Um, but there's a kind of way in which, uh, which um, we don't simply pay attention, we don't simply bring our attention to something like the breath or to a sound. But, and the idea is, as, when, as long as it's predominant, to sustain the attention there. To sustain the attention with the full in-breath. To sustain it with the full out-breath. And then again with the next in-breath. To sustain the attention, to cultivate and strengthen the ability to sustain attention, develop concentration. And it's not, believe it or not, it's not a lot of concentration which we're being asked to develop on retreat. Um, it just seems that way. But we, I think all of you have the ability to develop the level of concentration that's required. Um, a lot of some, I mean, half of you, I suspect, have the required level of concentration when you take the written exam at the DMV. You're really there, you're engaged, you're not thinking about anything else particularly, you're kind of really, kind of fully, you know, that's what's happening. You know, but it takes, it takes interest, it takes enthusiasm, it takes a kind of priority, a, val- a valuing, an appreciation, appreciation of this great world of being present. And so, so, so that our tendency to get lost and get involved in the whirlwind of thoughts and activities begins to abate. Only then will concentration develop. If we have the greater priority, greater interest in our physical, direct, embodied, lived experience. And again, to be careful. It's always so important to be very careful in retreat. To treat your practice here in retreat as a very tender little, uh, gentle, tender little, um, maybe a little bird, baby bird you're holding. And you want to be very careful with it, and just really honor and gentle and forgiving, kind. Um, And that care, carefulness, caringness, gentleness, kindness, forgivingness, kind of maintaining that through time, Naturally, following a schedule, being very simple, uh, we, uh, concentration will kind of come to you, will develop by itself. Sustaining attention through time. To, like, concentr- our ability to sustain attention through time is kind of like a muscle that we're strengthening. And it takes a while to strengthen the muscle, but the muscle gets stronger, and our ability to stay more in the present moment, more in the present moment, gets stronger with time. And the final factor of awakening is equanimity. Equanimity is the balance of mind, evenness of mind, where the mind is really like a mirror, where the mind, where there's, where, where there's a, I, I call it sometimes a Teflon mind. 
nothing sticks to it. I remember once being on retreat and doing walking meditation and someone came walking behind me in my walking path. And I turned around and they, what are they doing in my path? And I got angry, or anger kind of arose. But the anger had nowhere to stick. There was no grasping on the anger, no pushing away of the anger, and it just kind of passed through. There was an equanimity of mind where it didn't color or affect my mind one bit. To find that balance, that, neutral, that balanced place where, where we can allow ourselves to be as we are, and we don't have to react, we don't need to react, we can just allow things to come and go, arise and pass, um, and we're not caught by them, or we're not going to stick to them, we don't grasp onto them. Not get caught by the winds of success and failure, praise and blame, gain and fame. To have a kind of feeling of um, equanimity has in part the uh, aspect of, of um, not taking too personally or not taking too much responsibility for what's happening in your practice. That what, what arises and passes in your experience, the momentum of your, of your life that appears, arises kind of just... Um, you're not responsible for what arises, what occurs here. The only thing that you're responsible for here on the retreat is in this moment, how do you meet that? How do you come forward to meet this particular moment? Can you meet it with mindfulness? Can you bring more mindfulness, more accepting, caring, kind mindfulness, loving mindfulness to this, this particular activity here? To not feel so responsible is a great aid for equanimity. When, the, when we are more settled, joyful, tranquil, concentrated, it's a lot easier to have equanimity. And so equanimity isn't something you need to create and make happen, but it comes along with the practice as you practice more fully and get more fully engaged. So the seven factors of awakening in the um, great discourse the Buddha gave on mindfulness practice, the seven factors of awakening are listed uh, 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 pretty much right after the list of the five hindrances. These are the kind of two opposite forces of the mind. The five hindrances are the forces of preoccupation. We get lost in preoccupation. And the five, seven factors of awakening are the forces of, of presence, so the opposite of preoccupation, of being mindfully occupied. They're preoccupied, mindfully present. So as these things arise in your practice, you can appreciate them. And there are times when you might feel that the energy, the engagement, is, your energy level is dropping. And what you need is to bring up more energy up in the practice. And maybe perhaps it's possible to uh, do, uh, bring more investigation, to look more carefully as a way of bringing energy. Or to... Um, bring more engagement, to actually fuel yourself and sit up a little bit straighter and kind of, let's try to really notice here more carefully. 
And perhaps it's possible occasionally to evoke a little bit of joy, maybe through an act of faith, to think about that which brings you faith, and through that faith maybe to be lightened a little bit, and in that lightness to have a little bit more of a balanced uh, energy. Or if you find yourself too agitated or too restless as you sit here, perhaps it's possible to cultivate a little bit more calm or equanimity, more acceptance and non-reactivity. Perhaps a little bit more calm can be cultivated by taking a slower walk or taking just a, a more gentle walk. Or Sometimes maybe if you're really kind of stressed out, maybe taking a nice bath is a way of kind of calming one down. Um, um, or develop more, if you're really agitated, to develop more concentration, to kind of really try to stay with more breath. It's going to stay very, really, really simple with the breathing. And to stay in the attention with the breath. And that tends to kind of bring agitation down a little bit. So these things can be balanced a little bit. And, and sitting above all six of these factors of awakening is mindfulness, which never needs to be balanced with anything because you cannot have too much mindfulness. So go for it. <laughs> Howie? <laughs> that was your cue. So um, please be very kind to yourself, gentle, and um, take a great interest in this opportunity you have here to discover a way of being in the world that isn't only living in the usual stories and ideas you have of what's going on, but discover a sense of presence, a sense of aliveness, a sense of beingness, which is much wider and greater than any idea you have (laughs) of who you are. So uh, thank you for your your patience as I talked way over. And um, I wish you all well. And please, um, there's a half an hour for walking. And then Howie will be here this evening um, to inspire you all with uh, chanting. And some of you, a few of you, might want to come back and sit up late tonight after the chanting. And um, it's a precious opportunity to be here. And sometimes in the middle of the retreat, we don't need quite as much sleep anymore. And to stay up later or get up earlier is a a really delightful way of uh, continuing to develop the continuity. Thank you all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.